0: All right. Well, why don't we open with a word of prayer and we'll dive in here. Okay. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Um, Even as we were reflecting upon just now, the blessing of a robustly Christian wedding yesterday and two of our own uh, uniting in marriage. we, We thank you for the time of fellowship and the way you were honored through Uh, Joey and Sydney's desire to honor you in their wedding and we thank you uh, for our day of worship today and even right now being able to dive into your word together and we pray that you would build us up in the faith uh, teach us the truths of your word and most of all enlarge expand our knowledge of you our knowledge of your son that we might uh, be filled with a greater love and devotion to him and we pray lord for the work of your spirit he's the one who illumines our minds to understand and softens our hearts to receive your truth and so we pray for his work in us even this morning and we ask all of it in jesus name amen amen okay well we are in session eight in our study of the doctrine of man and sin we're still in the doctrine of man section And today we're going to uh, talk about the man, Jesus Christ, because he is so critical to any understanding of the Bible's teaching about humanity, um, the fact that Jesus himself came in the flesh as a man. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to start with reminding ourselves of what the Bible teaches about the fall of mankind, because that's going to really set the stage for understanding Jesus and how he redeems humanity. So let's first of all start with the first man, Adam. And what I want to just articulate and then we'll establish from the scriptures is that Adam was designated by God as the representative head of mankind. So we all have representatives in our system of government, people that act upon our behalf in our governmental system. You know, whether or not they represent our own personal desires and interests is neither here nor there. They are voted to stand uh, in Congress, for instance, on our behalf and, and vote on our behalf. So what they do counts for us. And there is a sense in which, although it is not necessarily explicitly revealed in, for instance, the book of Genesis, yet what you see as the storyline of the Bible unfolds is that clearly Adam, the first man, had been designated as a, a representative He's the first man. He's the head of the human race, uh, our ultimate ancestor. And what he did in the beginning ended up counting for us as his progeny, as his descendants. So that's what we're going to look at. And I think probably the most clear way you can see this revealed in Scripture is simply the fact that what Adam did had ramifications for us. We inherited the... Consequences of Adam's original or his first sin in the garden. And so, you can tell that he must have represented us in some way because though we weren't there, what he did ended up being passed on to us, counting for us. And so, I want to talk about three ways in which was this was the case. First of all, I want to talk about the fact that Adam's guilt was credited to us. In other words, the guilt of his first sin was reckoned to our account. We inherited it, even though we weren't there to commit that first sin. Um, yet, the guilt of that sin has been credited to us. And so, a place we can see this is Romans chapter 5. So, if someone would read Romans 5, 18 and 19, we'll just select these two verses out of a larger section because they sort of capture it in a nutshell for us so Romans five eighteen through 19 if someone would read that therefore as one trespass led to the con- to condemnation for all men so
1: one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men
0: as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous all right Now, when he says in verse 18, the one act of righteousness or the obedience of the one man, Jesus, leads to justification in life for all men. We recognize that what Paul is not saying is that we were justified through our own obedience, but rather we were justified through the obedience of another, through the obedience of Christ. So Christ obeyed, and yet we were declared righteous. And you, when you think about that for any period of time, you realize that the only way that works out is through what we would call imputation. That is, the crediting of what another did to our account. Right? We didn't actually obey. In fact, we did the opposite, right? We all sinned. That's what he That's what he says throughout the first three chapters, right? All have sinned. If we stand before God on the basis of our own life, then we're condemned. But the righteousness, the obedience of Christ leads to our justification in that his righteousness is credited to us. And you say, well, how can that be? Because he was our representative head. What he did counted for us. Well, the flip side of that that we're looking back on is that what Adam did, his one trespass in a parallel way, led to condemnation for all men. So because he was our representative, his sin leads to our condemnation. It was credited to our account. Why? Because we were all in him in a sense. He was our designated head, our designated representative. And that's why what he did counted for us. And before you cry foul and say, not so fast! How could that be? That's not fair. You realize, well, it set things up for the flip side to be true, right? That even though we were disobedient, Christ's righteousness could be credited to us. So, if we think one's unfair, then we'd have to say the other's unfair too. Well, we also
1: have to realize that we would have been saying it out we had... Right. If it had been me, in yeah. that situation, I would
0: have been... Right. I mean, none of us would have done any better. Okay, so that's the first thing that we see, is that Adam's guilt is credited to us, that we inherit it. A pretty bad inheritance, right? But through, as one trespass led to condemnation, guilt for all men. But then, in addition to that, Adam's corruption, so he... When he sinned, his nature became corrupt. You can see that even in the ensuing story. Immediately we see him blaming his wife, right? And then Eve's blaming, she blames the serpent and they all blame God. This woman you gave me, right? (laughs) So you begin to see that corruption that has happened within their souls, and as the storyline goes on, you realize, yeah, Cain's corrupt. You know, Lamech's corrupt. They're all corrupt. They fill the world with corruption as they multiply. So, whatever happened with Adam, not only his guilt but also his sinful nature was passed down to us. Would someone read um, Ephesians chapter two, verse three? To of whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's a very interesting verse, right? Because the scope of it stretches out to all mankind. And he's saying that we, just like the rest of mankind, were by nature children of wrath. That means we by nature did things that deserve God's judgment. And that so that indicates a corrupt and fallen nature, right? And you could also see it by the fact that. He talks about living in the passions of the flesh. So our flesh, our sinful nature, who we are in Adam, as it were, the nature we inherited from Adam, is filled with sinful desires. So you could say the flesh, the sinful desire, is bent upon sin. By nature we do what is deserving of God's wrath. And that, that's a tough pill to swallow, but it's also like empirically obvious, isn't it? that anyone who's raised children, for instance, knows you never have to teach them to do what's wrong. They come out of the womb doing what's wrong. Now, it looks... They're not able to manifest that right away in the same way, but as they grow and develop, it comes out. So the Proverbs say, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction drives it far from him. So you have to work hard to teach your child even external obedience, and only God can change our hearts. So it's it's an empirically obvious thing that all human beings are born with a sin nature. Where did that come from? Adam. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Adam. Right? But like you said, Katrin, if we were in his place, would we really have done any different? Why
1: does yeah. that seem like, I, I feel like we talked about this like a while ago when we were doing lessons in the other room, yeah. but it, uh, it almost makes it seem like God's Sacrifice wasn't we'll equal because we don't have a choice for sinful, no matter what. Mm-hmm. But I, obviously, like I know it is because like it's to come that like heaven is to come. And, right. His fulfilling of the plan is later on, but it's like man made the wrong choice. We're all corrupt. Now we don't have a choice to be corrupt. God died on the cross for our sins, but we can choose Him. But we're still going to be corrupt. Mm. But like it's yeah, it's, like, it's a choice. But it's not. It doesn't. Like why doesn't His his sacrifice fully reverse the corruption. Well,
0: I would say this, that okay, I'm going to be careful here. I'm not denying that there are means to which this is accomplished such as our repentance and faith. But I would say that the, the best way to think of it is that just as Adam acted on behalf of all those who were in him which was the whole human race Christ acted on behalf of all those who were in him, his people, which is the elect, right? Those whom the Father had given him to save, his sheep, his bride, right? And in that sense, just as what Adam did happened and and he secured for all of his people, us, uh, guilt, corruption, death, Christ, through his obedience, actually secured infallibly full redemption for all those who are in him so even faith is something that all those for whom christ died all those for whom he accomplished redemption even faith is a gift that that has been secured through his redemption and he will give it to them infallibly and he will bring them finally to glory so when we, when we recognize that, uh, you know, we believe and we repent, so there is a choice there. That is true. But you would never do that left to yourself. God gives you faith. God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a new heart. And then he's going to preserve your faith throughout your life. And he's going to glorify you through resurrection at the end of the day. So even your, anyone who's in Christ, their salvation has been accomplished Secured through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and it will be applied to everyone who, for whom he's died. Now, we don't know who that is, right? <laughs> but we do know that just like all those who are in Adam receive what he secured for them, all those who are in Christ will receive. Does that does that get, get to the issue here? I guess just because
1: we're still... Having a of right.
0: Right, so it's...
1: We were in a good world before, and then the fall really, like, affected everything. Right. But, it, like, like I, I'm not trying to, like, argue. It's just hard to understand, I think.
0: Yeah. Adam... Like,
1: why are we not fully redeemed yeah, now? Yeah, you know, like, just to make it more equal. But I suppose if you think about the, the sacrifice in, like, a future sense, like, the gift and the blessing is supposed to come later, I guess, in heaven. Right. Uh, you know, for his people... Then I guess that that makes sense. It just it just the timing is
0: different. Yeah, the timing is different, and I think for the purpose, for the reason that the people whom God has given to Christ to save are scattered throughout generations of people, right? Mm-hmm. So, when Christ came, He accomplished their redemption, and it is given to those. He's it's given to people in time and space over the course of generations. And he can't bring it all in at once because it takes time for all his elect to be... So in a sense, you might sum it up this way. It's the Great Commission that explains the delay, right? Because he has a people that are from every tongue, tribe, and nation and from every generation until the end of the age. So that's why it doesn't come all at once in the way that Adams did, right? Yeah, that Okay, and then um, one more thing that we inherited from Adam, which is, so we have his guilt, his corruption, and also the consequence of his sin, death. So if someone would read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 21 and 22.
1: 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Whereas by a man came death, by a
0: man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, so by a man, who turns out is Adam, has come death. We died in Adam. Uh, When he received death, we receive death in him. Uh, But in the same way, we all receive life in Christ. When he rose from the dead, He secured our resurrection. And to get to Carly's point, you look a little earlier on in the chapter, he explains that our resurrection doesn't come right away, but it comes at his second coming. So, uh, let me see. It's the next verse. Uh, Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. But nevertheless, um, we receive from Adam the consequence of his sin. This is just one text that says this. Uh, Romans 5 says the same thing. But So Adam was our representative head. What he did counted for us, or for all those in him, all humanity. Mankind inherited the consequences of Adam's first sin, which is guilt, corruption, and death. And... So what happens is, as the human race expands and grows out of Adam, after Adam, and out of Adam as his, as his descendants, the opposite of what God intended for the human race begins to unfold. So what does God intend for the human race in Genesis 1:27 and 28? He makes them in his image so that they would reflect something of his glorious character in their lives. And they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So as they filled the earth, what were they to fill the earth with? The image of God, right? (laughs) So they were to bring him glory upon the earth. But when you get to Genesis 6, what do we see? The opposite happens when they fill the earth. So just a couple verses here. Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with... The image of God? No. Violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, God created man in his image, told him to be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, so that they would fill the earth with the image of God to his glory. Instead, we inherited Adam's guilt and corruption and death. And so when we filled the earth, we filled it with corruption and violence. And if we ever got what we deserved, we would get what he talks about here. That God would destroy us with the earth. Alright, so basically Adam really messed up God's plan for humanity. Now, that being said, I mean obviously God's plan from the beginning was creation, fall, redemption. But just look at it from a human perspective. uh, Adam flipped on its head God's original intention for mankind. Okay, any questions on that? Okay. All right. Now we come to the ultimate man. So now we're going to talk about what did God do to redeem fallen humanity? You know, there's a sense in which you say, Well, maybe the best plan would have been just to wipe out all of humanity and just start over again, right? But that's not how God decided to do it. Instead, to redeem humanity, and here we're assuming, obviously, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we see is that God the Father, the person of the Father, sent God the Son, the person of the Son, into the world, into their own creation, to become a man. The man, Jesus Christ. It's a profound thing, right? And yet, this is clearly what the Bible teaches. So, someone want to read John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. 1, 14. Would someone read those? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you see all the elements there, right? The Word is the Son from the Father who was in the beginning with God and became flesh and dwelt among us. It's all those elements. This is how God would redeem humanity through God the Father sending God the Son into the world as a man. The man, Jesus Christ, you find out it's Jesus Christ down in verse 17 when it says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the word, become flesh. Um, we also see it in Paul's description, famous description in chapter Philippians chapter 2, 5 through, through 8. Would someone read those verses?
2: Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.
0: Alright, unless you think, lest you think that the language of he existed in the form of God just means he had God's shape, or... He was somehow like God, but not really God. That's not what the Greek means there. Form, morphe, in that, in in this kind of context, uh, means sharing the same nature. That's why, to clear up the confusion, the new numer- the new international version just translates it: "Who, being in very nature God," uh, and that's that's accurate. That's an accurate translation. And then he took the form of a slave say, wait a second, come on. A slave? Yeah, that's just his way of referring to a human being. Um, It's translated servant to indicate that, like Jesus said, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, the one who was in the form of God, who was by very nature God, emptied himself by not pouring out any of his divine nature or anything like that, but by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So you have one who is in very nature God entering into the world as a man and then in obedience to God ended up being hung as a condemned criminal on a Roman cross until he died. It's a profound thing. This is what the Bible teaches. One more. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Let's look at this. Would someone read those verses?
1: But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons.
0: So when he says... God sent forth his son. That's not the language of like just normal birth, is it? Like if I said when the time was right, God sent forth Scott Gregory into the world. You'd be like, "Well, that's a little off because Scott didn't really exist before he was conceived, right?" But that is the way that the Bible talks about Jesus. He was sent into the world. He existed beforehand. When it says he was born of a woman, what's that emphasizing? He's a human being, right? When it says born under the law, what's that emphasizing? Yeah, but particularly, we're talking, the law would be in reference, especially in the book of Galatians, to the old covenant law. So he's not only a man, he's a specific type of man, he's an Israelite, right? And that was all important because he was going to inherit, fulfill all those prophecies and inherit all those promises. He's the true seed of Abraham. He's, in one sense, the true Israelite. So he's a man and he's an Israelite so that he could be the one who would fulfill every promise of the Old Testament. Going back to the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, to a seed of Abraham, a seed of David, etc. But so he, he came into the world as a man. And he was a true man. It's interesting, in there are two genealogies of Jesus. One's in Matthew, and that traces it back him back to Abraham through David to emphasize he's an Israelite. But Luke's genealogy is different. It traces it back him his lineage back further. Where does it trace back? Luke. Adam, Adam right. So, Luke 3, 23, you think, you get to Abraham, you think, well, that's enough. But instead, it goes back, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So, when it traces his lineage back to Adam, what's the point of that? It's the same point. To show
2: that he's the second
0: Adam? Yeah, it's to to show that he's a descendant of Adam, that he's That he is a human being. He's one of us. Now, also, we see that he's not born in exactly the same way as we were. That there was something different about his birth that was also important. Luke chapter 1 tells us about it. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, so, here it's emphasizing that Jesus' birth would not be like a normal human birth. He would be born of a woman. He would be a true man, but he would not have a human father, and the purpose of that is so that he would be called holy, the Son of God. If he had a human father, the implication is that he would be he would not be able to be called holy, the Son of God. What do you think is the implication there? Why was the virgin conception and birth important? So they
1: didn't inherit the signature.
0: Right. It's implying. Right. It's not saying that necessarily that there's some biological thing here, but it's saying he's he's born of a woman in the natural way, in the sense that you know she went through childbirth. She's, he was conceived in her womb. He grew and developed in her womb and was born in the normal way. He's a man, but he's not a man in the exact same way as all of us, in the sense that. He didn't have a human father, so that that passing on of Adam's sin, right, stops with Jesus. He is not a sinner. He does not inherit Adam's sinful nature, nor his guilt, right? So the virgin birth, conception of birth, is sort of this stopping point. Now we have a second Adam, a new beginning for humanity in this man who is holy And throughout his life, we see that he showed it by never sinning. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. So we have in Jesus one who is a like Adam before the fall, except infinitely better. Because it's human Nature united to the person of the divine Son of God, so that he was there was no chance of him sinning in that sense. Theologians would call it his impeccability. He was unable to sin because he was the God-Man.
1: So the only way that we cannot
0: sin is through Christ. Right. We need a if we're going to never sin. We need a glorified human nature, right? Which will come through Christ. But you see, this was the way that God decided to redeem humanity. That He sent the person of the Son, the divine Son of God, into, the, into creation, into the human race, to be born as a man, as a second Adam. And like the first Adam, He would be a, a true man, but unlike Adam and all of his seed, he would, not, he would not inherit Adam's sin or corruption, any of its consequences. So we say, okay, this is an, a new beginning for the human race. And we see that in terms of his function, what he would do to inherit, to redeem humanity, Jesus would be a second Adam. He would be a representative head of a new humanity. And I think that's important, right? Because if, because what we're going to say is that he, what he did counted for those he represented. So what Adam did counted for those he represented. Adam represented all humanity. Jesus represents a new humanity, but it is a remnant of fallen humanity. If, if Jesus represented all humanity in the same way then and what he did counted for them then all humanity would be saved right so there is a distinction they're both representative heads or you might say covenant heads to use the old puritan language adam was the head of humanity in a covenant of works jesus is the head of humanity in a new covenant a covenant of grace but what you say is that what he did counted for them. God designated him to be their representative. And you say, Oh, thank you of all the people to be my representative. I'm glad it's Jesus because he's perfect. You say, Amazing. Here's finally a man who will act on my behalf and he will do what I cannot do and no human being has been able to do. So the men and women united to him by faith that is. God's elect, those whom He has chosen to save before the foundation of the world, they will inherit the benefits of His perfect obedience. So, the older theologians would call this, would summarize all of Jesus' atoning work, His redeeming activity as His obedience. And it was an obedience unto death, and it involved, they would say, active obedience, that is, He would live a perfectly righteous life. He would fulfill all of the commands of God positively. And it was a passive obedience. He would also bear all of the curses of the law, the penalties that we deserve. But you could sum it all up as he was an obedient man unto God, perfectly obedient. And his perfect obedience would be then credited to those in him, Those whom the Father had given him to save. And so we see this if we go back to Romans 5. Now, I sort of messed all this up because I started talking about Jesus when the first go-around. But let's go back to this verse, these verses. Romans 5, 15 through 19. We'll just look at at these verses here. And would someone read 15 through 19?
1: But the free gift is not like trespass. much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous.
0: Yeah, and just to add in verse 20... The law came in to increase the trespass where sin increased. Grace abounded all the more. So there are these two contrasts. There's a contrast here between Adam as the head of humanity. Jesus as the head of a new humanity. They're both representative heads. You see in the text that what they do counts for those who belong to them, who, whom they represent. Adam's disob Adam disobeys, leading to um, condemnation and death. So his sin is credited to all those in him. They receive condemnation and death. They're born guilty sinners, let's put it that way, who are dead before God and headed to destruction because of what Adam did. But then Jesus enters the scene as the head of a new humanity. He is also a representative head. What he does counts for those whom he represents. And his obedience, or his act of righteousness, leads to justification. Condemnation, justification. right, And life. Death, life. So you see the parallelism? That's what's being said. So you say, well, wait a second. How could I be held accountable for what Adam did? He was your representative head. And thank goodness, because over here, I like that a lot. (laughs) How could I be justified through what someone else did? Oh, It's grace. Over here, it's justice, right? We receive the just consequences of Adam's sin. Over here, it's grace. It's a gift. We receive the righteousness and life merited, as it were, by the perfect obedience of Christ and it's given to us as a gift. And we say, okay, I'll take it over here so I can have it here. (laughs) But we don't really have a choice in the matter. Another text, 1 Corinthians 15. Going back to this other text we looked at, you see the parallel again, verses 21 through 22. Let's read those verses again and and notice the parallel. So if someone want to read... Verses 21 to 22 of 1 Corinthians 15.
1: For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made
0: alive. Alright, so here death and resurrection or life, or eternal life, you might say, are put in parallel. Sin is not talked about, but we know it's there, right? Because death is the wages of sin, right? So, in Adam, you could say, we all became guilty and received the consequence of death. In Adam, all die. And in Christ, in the same way, all, except, it says, all shall be made alive. So we know it can't be talking about all humanity, right? It's talking about all those in Him. All those in Adam, was the whole human race, all those in Christ are those who believe. Or you could say his elect. And they are all made alive. That is, they, the only way you can have life is if you're righteous. How are you righteous? Through Christ's obedience. So, righteousness is implied here, but it, it must be there. The only way that we could have eternal life or resurrection life with Christ is if we were justified. So, it's the same idea as in Romans 5. One more text. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3 and then I'll open it for questions. Philippians 3, 4-9. through nine. I'll read this one. It says, So this is Paul reflecting first on his past life as a Pharisee and then saying how things have changed for him. And he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So as he says this, I want you to picture an accounting ledger. An accounting ledger. There's the credit column, the things that count in your positive things in your account, right? (laughs) And then you have the debit column. Losses. So profits and losses. And he's putting all these things into the prophet column. He's saying, okay, if we're thinking according to the flesh, you you think you have reason for confidence. I have more. I have more things to put in my prophet column over here, right? Circumcised the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A prominent tribe, right? Connected with Judah. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law blameless. Okay, so all these, he's saying, according to the flesh, those are all my prophet column. And he said, but something happened to me. I realized that those are not, didn't actually do any profit for me. Uh, He says, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Let's just put it all in there. if you were to sum it up, he had all these things that he thought were in his profit column, and now he says, he crumples them all up like a piece of paper, throws them into the loss column. He says, Now I consider all loss. In fact, anything else you want to give me, I put it in my loss column for the sake of what is in his profit column? Christ is in his profit column. And particularly, a righteousness that's not his own, but comes from God. A righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. So, that I may gain Christ. Christ is in his prophet column. And what does he get from Christ? Righteousness and life, right? So, he sees that his only thing that is of true eternal worth and value, all those things that he thought gave him a right standing with God. Now they're in his lost column because he trusted in them and they're all filthy rags anyway. And now in his prophet column, he has one item, Christ. And his perfect righteousness. And that's all he needs, right? Because how could he add to that? By the way, that's something that we should all reflect on every day. Lord, I realize that I can do nothing to add to the righteousness that you've already given to me in Christ, right? And by the way, I cannot take away from that righteousness through my sin because he's already paid off all my debts. So, it's the same thing that he comes along as a man, the second Adam, in that he was God's designated representative of a new humanity, those who put their trust in him, his elect, and he acts on their behalf and what does he do? He obeys God perfectly unto death and his perfect righteousness is put into our credit column. And it's a gift. What he does counts for us. Does that make sense? Okay, so questions about him as the second Adam. Any questions? Ted. All right. Well, Jeremy, just yeah. that um, there, those two passages, uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians 15, right. they used the word "use the word all right. multiple times and those are the same passages that people use to say that all are saved and so mm-hmm. Christ died for all and then it's just a matter of who chooses him rather than him choosing them. Well and there in so you said two things there that are somewhat intention. You said people use those passages to say all are saved, right? So if the two alls are equivalent, or his, or his crucifixion and resurrection saved all, or it was sufficient for all, but all just don't pick it. Right. So there's therein lies the rub, in my opinion, is that if what Christ did is actually effectual, right, it accomplishes a salvation, and if it if he actually paid the, for the sins of people, right, obedient unto death then it's done. And those who are in him, the all, or in it also oscillates between the all and the many, but the all would have righteousness in life because he secured it. So I would say that if you want to go the route of saying that the two alls are the same group of people, you really have to argue for a universalism, a a universal salvation, right? So that's why I think the better way to understand it is that the two alls represent the totality of their people, those whom they represented. So the all in Adam are all humanity. The all in Christ are all who are in Christ, all his people. But I think it, it has to be interpreted that way. Otherwise, you end up with a a, uh, a universalism because if you you, you know, if, if just take the First um, Corinthians 15 passage. If you look there for a second. In Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's an effect here. <laughs> like, people like that. If they're actually made alive, then the all must be, you know, if that refers to everyone, then all would have to be saved, right? So that's why I say it seems that the alls are not intended to be equivalent. The all in Adam are all humanity. The all in Christ are those in Christ. In Adam, in Christ. Does that make sense? I mean, I... Well, I think, I get it. I I hear the argument. Right.
1: I mean, I can we know, just all it? should be saved and that none should, should perish. So, the desire of Christ is that all should be saved. But we know that all don't. So, if, if all were, you know, were the elect, but God knew before we were ever created that we were His chosen people. Sure. So.
0: Yeah, I think the, the point, though, being that in these passages, it speaks of something actually happening being made alive and dying or if you go back to romans 5 it's through what christ did all are are righteous and have life so it actually speaks of something being accomplished so the all there has to be those who actually receive what christ did right so You see, it can't refer to everyone. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. Everyone would be righteous. Everyone had life. But
1: don't we need to be careful about taking an attitude of, oh, well, you must not be one of the chosen, so I'm not going to bother witnessing to
0: you? Definitely. We
1: need to live every day.
0: Definitely. Because these passages are not speaking to who we proclaim the gospel to. They're just simply stating the fact that Christ is has accomplished salvation for all whom he, in Him, all whom represent Him. And who are those? Those who believe in Him. We don't know who that is. And we're just called to proclaim the gospel to all and say, whoever believes in Him will be saved, right? But in terms of looking at it objectively, we say that Christ has a people. And he died for them, and he was obedient unto death for them, and his and he accomplished their redemption. And it will, as we, were, as I was saying to uh, Carly earlier, it will be given to them, no matter what. Were you going to say something?
2: I was going to try and paraphrase John Murray, which is probably a bad idea. <laughs> we were just reading through this right. thing in the book, and he's making the very good case that hey, if you look at Romans, we also see that. Everyone who's referred to as being saved, not just partakes in Christ's death for all, but we die in Christ, with Christ. Right. So by that token, we automatically narrow down, because we would not proclaim that all have died with Christ. That does right. not work. So right. the two can't be in conflict with each other, therefore we have to take the wider one and assume that his all, is the same, all in both places. Right. Or in Romans 8, that he who did not spare his own son that delivered over for us all. That one, if you just stop there, can seem like all, everybody. Mm -hmm. But then later on, well, next verse, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Then who will separate us from the love of Christ? Neither death nor life nor rulers will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's referring to a smaller subset, so that is Paul's expansion and narrowing of who he's defining all as. Yeah,
0: that's good. I don't know if that was more succinct than John Murray. It was a good summary. <laughs> that was good. That was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except with harder words to understand. <laughs> Were you going to say something, Carly? Did you want to ask the there's question? Like
1: processing thing yeah. just like... It just is hard to like understand like if there's really an elect, and it's like, oh yeah, what's the point of evangelizing? They're going to be mm-hmm. believers at some point in their life, no matter what. And I think the whole like evangelizing thing, or like witnessing thing, is is not just for them, I think it's also for, like, the person that's growing and witnessing, like, they're, they're probably learning mm-hmm. a lot, too, by witnessing, so I can understand that, but like, just, it's hard, because like, you, you think of people in your life, and it's like right they're just so defiant, like, why do you keep trying to, try to find, like, what you know, if God's going to make a breakthrough for them at some point in their life, like, it's going to happen whether you want it to or not, like, whether you're doing, like, I don't know, I feel like right. God can use you, but if he's going to
0: yeah. It's a temptation to think that way, Carly. Yeah. But the reality is is that it's a wrong way of thinking because while the Bible is clear that God has chosen some for salvation before the foundation of the world, that he has a sheep that he's given to the Son to save, that Christ laid down his life for them, right? Yet He God has also chosen, A, that we don't know who the elect is right and god has chosen to save those through the witness of his people so our evangelism is the means by which god saves you can think of the same way with prayer right i'm praying to god but as if does god not know what i'm gonna ask and does he does he um Is my prayer going to change the eternal plan of God? No, it's not. However, God has commanded us to pray and has said in his word that he will answer our prayers. So our prayers are woven into the plan and purpose of God. He he chooses to act to work out his plan and incorporate our prayers into that. So what we say is that there is a a paradox, as it were, a mystery in how to understand the sovereignty of God on the one hand, what the Bible says about that, and human responsibility on the other.
1: Because if we didn't pray, would that change the course of things? Right. Like, you can't.
0: Yeah, and and it's, it's like, you can't even say that in the sense that God has ordained that we would pray. Right? Like, our prayers are part of the plan of God. However, we don't act like we're not robots just being controlled by God in such a way that we're not making conscious choices
1: So, like, well no but like the elect technically so like the fall calls everyone to be sinners kind of without choice and technically now the elect are all going to be saved at some point technically without choice if you think about it that way if they're elect then they're going to be believers whether they like you know, in their mind, yeah. they, they
0: want to. It's not apart from their, their choice. It's, it's like, not apart from their choice. It's just that. But but if
1: he elected them, then they're going to choose that no matter what. Right.
0: He's going to bring. He's going to work on their chooser. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Because if if you're left to yourself, Carly, apart from God's grace, would you ever choose Christ? Right? Right. No. So God has chosen in this mass of condemned humanity rushing headlong to destruction to work in the hearts of some.
1: Yeah, but if I
0: wasn't his elect, I, would, like, I wouldn't have. Right. He, those, those who he has not—he's chosen not to save, he leaves to destruction. That is true. And you have to remember
1: that
0: none of us deserve it. Yeah. He
1: doesn't... wasn't our
0: choice either. Right, that thought we were fallen. Fallen in Adam.
1: He created us so he can do whatever he wants with us. Okay. Well, I would say this... <laughs>
0: Yeah. See, and that that is certainly not true. Uh, that's certainly not true. I would I would say that there is an element of mystery here. Now, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions to your satisfaction and explain all of this. But I would say that you know ants in a little cage is not the character of God, right? So there is a there is a place in which we have to say, okay, I know the Bible says this. I know it says this. I don't know how to work all this out. If you, try to, if you try to press in and understand something that God has said, I'm not, I'm not going to explain myself to you in all these details that you want, right? He says, you, you have to humble yourself and you have to trust me. But if you question my character, you're making a giant mistake because I've proven my character. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and came in the likeness of man And while we were yet sinners, he died for us, right? So he's proven his love. He's proven his compassion. He doesn't... Adam sinned, and we had a relationship to Adam, and he was our representative. And so, yes, we fell in Adam before we were ever born. But that was not unjust. That was... God doesn't owe us anything, right? If we got what was just, we would perish. But in his grace and his mercy, he chooses to save some. So, I often come back to Romans 9 in these types of conversations, and do you remember what Paul said in that verse? He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, right? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, Then why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But then notice, this is, what, this is where Paul pushes back, right? And he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? So, at no point do you see that he acknowledges any injustice on God's part, There's vessels of wrath who deserve his judgment. There's vessels of mercy who receive undeserved favor. There's no no injustice. But he does say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. God is God. We are man. He doesn't owe us an explanation for all of our questions. And at some point we have to step back and realize, I need to trust him with some of these things that I don't understand. And I need to not in any way go down the road of imputing to him some kind of injustice, and so it's a sensitive subject, Carly. And I don't, I don't resent in any way your questions. It's just that you know, I don't think any of us are given all of the answers to all the mysteries of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And what we have to be careful to do is to humble ourselves and say, "Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God and question what He's done?"
1: I feel like a Christian that understands like the, the gravity more so than like a non-believer. Like that can be understood, but trying to like explain
0: that to a non is, right. is just difficult because they
1: don't... And, and I don't... And like, like, yeah. Oh, up you can't it to me. Like,
0: and I don't even think that I necessarily would try to explain this to an unbeliever. I mean, if they ask, then you have to talk about it, right? But it takes faith to even reckon with these things, really, yeah. you know. So... With an unbeliever, I just say, "Look, here's the deal: repent and believe, and you'll be saved."
1: Right? But I feel like I found myself like when I'm like at camp not meadows, and I'm telling yeah. campers like, "God down on the cross for everybody that chooses Him." I'm not saying for, for the elect. Yeah. So, like, we're trying to figure out who's yeah. here or not. Like, like I'm telling them, yeah. like, if you choose, it almost seems like weirdly like I'm trying to like.
0: Yeah, I, I see. I wouldn't even say that, Carly. I would just say, look. Christ died for the sins of everyone who will believe in Him. So believe in it, you know. Now there's
1: well, tell them that it's that there's only a select few. I guess right.
0: You know. Yeah, I wouldn't even.
1: Well,
0: I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that, Carly. Not because it's not well, there's not technically correct. Like, oh, like, right.
1: I guess I'm not one of
0: them. I wouldn't do that not because it's not technically correct. I'm not saying you're saying anything wrong, but because the scripture never speaks that way, right? So when it speaks of the free offer of the gospel, it just says, "Whoever will believe in me will not perish. I have come to give you life. I've come as a sacrifice for the sins of everyone who believe in me. Come, repent and turn." I, I wouldn't so it never puts election into there unless it's speaking to believers, right? So I just I just came across this the other day and I was thinking about it in the midst of all this. You know, if it's speaking to believers, to assure believers of their security in Christ, right? Think of Romans 8, where it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, right? Oh, going back a verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who just so. If I'm speaking to you, Carly, and you've put your faith in Christ, I say God has chosen you. He's He's sent Christ to pay for your sins. If I'm speaking to a world of unbelievers, I say repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He is a sacrifice for the sins of everyone who will trust in Him. Right, but I don't put election in there because the Bible doesn't seem to speak that way to the world. Election is. To assure believers of their security in Christ. Does that make sense?
1: It also assures you, as a counselor, that, that there's no. God has asked you, He's told you, hey, preach the gospel, but it's not up to you to say it. Yeah. So right. You, it
0: gives you comfort.
2: Like, yeah. Man, the pressure's not on me to change their heart. Yeah. yeah. yeah if we don't have election, we can't ultimately get to any sense of eternal security, right? right? Because the only way for us to stay in Christ is for us to, is for him to hold us. as Bodhi Valky said, if there any possible way for us to lose our salvation, we would. We would right. manage to pull it off.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: The bigger picture is that as, as Christians, we have a
1: responsibility to, to pray. And as we were saying in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, it says that he uses our our prayers to fulfill his plan right. and I, I firmly believe that we know that God knows everything he He does everything according to his will but he also does things for our faith so mm-hmm. if we have somebody we're praying for and we don't know if they're the elect or and, and, right. and they become a Christian then that validates our, our faith and so yeah. a lot of things he has us we're, we're called to do to strengthen right. our faith in, in him
0: if the doctrine of election is making you lazy, well, God will do it all. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is what you think, Carla, but if it's do, having that effect upon you, you're not thinking about it properly, right? Because the scripture, um, while it does say God has a plan, God has chosen to save some. In fact, Christ has died for their sins to secure their, their salvation. It says that, but and yet at the same time, It says, you know, Paul can say, pray for me, that I might speak the gospel as I ought, right? Or, um, uh, Paul will pray for the believers he's planted churches, and, and pray that God will strengthen, sustain their faith, right? So, he's not denying God's sovereign plan, but the sovereign plan of God never undermines his sense of responsibility before God that God that he he's called to pray he's called to preach the gospel and God will work through those things to accomplish his plan. It's just that if you're trying to pray and preach the gospel and you don't know that God does have a plan that he's working out, man, then then that would take all the wind out of your sails, right? <laughs> like there's no guarantee that this is going to work, so to speak, you know, to use crass language. So I think these are truths but there are truths that are to, to have an effect, a particular effect upon us, not to make us lazy to undermine our responsibility before God, but rather to encourage us. So you think of how Paul brings them together in Philippians 2. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is He who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the sovereignty of God is meant to encourage you in your own Christian life. It's not if you're flipping it around, saying, well, God's going to work it all out. So I don't really need to worry about it. Then that's sinful presumption, right? And that's, that's a wrong way to respond. That's, the Bible never teaches these truths that way. All right. Well, we're going to have to come back and finish this next time. I did have a couple more slides, uh, and that's okay. I, this is a good discussion, Carly. I really appreciate your questions. Please, uh, you know, I thank you for that. It's good. It's given a good discussion. So we'll we'll finish it up next time, and um, we will, and then we'll hopefully cover some additional material as well. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together, and. Lord, just thinking about the fact that Jesus is the, the second Adam, the, a, the true man who has come to redeem a new humanity. We think of the fact that Paul said, In Adam, all died. In Christ, all are made alive. How Christ is the first fruits from among the dead, because he lives. All those in him by faith will also be one day raised. Lord, these truths give us great hope and great confidence and joy in Christ. Even as we face hardship and loss and struggle in this life. And so we rejoice in the second Adam. And we thank you for his atoning work, his perfect obedience unto death, which is reckoned now to our account, so that we might live through him. Pray that you would deepen our knowledge of Christ through this, and our appreciation for who he is, and what he has done, that we might love him more, and serve him with a greater devotion. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys.